Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. (laughs) Nope, no weapons over there. Maybe under here. Wait a second, what was that? Sound familiar? Apparently U.S. presidents joking about murdering people everywhere on the planet, whether lying about the reasons or not, passes for approved speech online, as opposed to, say, on YouTube. On the other hand, what is not allowed and censored and banned? In our information, terrorism, one side to every story, corporate media watch episode this week, a no-laughing-matter look at U.S. presidential depraved sense of dark humor by, well, one of those widely censored and banned entities, RT's Don Corder reports. YouTube has slapped a global ban on all media linked to the Russian government and even within Russia itself. The company cited its policy, which restricts content that denies, minimizes or trivializes well-documented violent events. But on court has been looking into how well the company itself follows its own rules. RT, Sputnik, even our video agency, Ruptly, all banned on YouTube. Its parent company, Google, seems to be gradually silencing anything that doesn't fit the West's version of the truth. And at the same time, George W. Bush's jokes about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq are still fair game. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. Nope, no weapons over there. Maybe under here. As many as 1.2 million people died for that joke. Casualties of a war the U.S. justified with a search for deadly weapons that ended up not existing. But Bush isn't alone in the pool of U.S. presidents with a dark sense of humor. His successor, Barack Obama, actually ordered 10 times as many drone strikes and yet somehow won a Nobel Peace Prize and thinks Predator drones are a joke. The Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. (laughs) You will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? Who could forget 2016 presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's blood-curdling cackling, which followed NATO's 2011 bombing of Libya and the killing of its president, Muammar Gaddafi? As we came... We saw, he died. (laughs) (laughs) So jokes about brutal invasions that collectively led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people are okay on YouTube, but Russian media is not? It sure raises questions as to what so-called community YouTube is actually beholden to. And next on Arts Express, Suzanne Vega, a veteran singer and songwriter, has apparently expanded her creative inspiration to the stage and now the screen with her one-woman solo show adapted into a movie and having just premiered at the Austin, Texas South by Southwest Film Festival, Lover Beloved. An experimental blend of theater, film, and music, Vega takes an emotional deep dive into the controversial life of Carson McCullers, warts and all, The best-selling mid-20th century Deep South novelist, short story writer, playwright, essayist, poet, and author of works adapted for the screen, and that include The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Member of the Wedding, Reflections in a Golden Eye, and Ballad of the Sad Café. Vega's unconventional portrait of McCullers, excerpted here, delves into decades of a controversial life, loves literary rivalries, and an ambivalent relationship with art, literature, and creative inspiration. 
Not that I care one whit about reviews, but lately the critics say that I am a holy terror, that I am a destroyer, carnivorous, cannibalistic, that I am an emotional vampire. This is the Y, the 92nd Street Y. I'm here for the, what's it called, the Successful Young Author Lecture Series of 1941 or some such thing. They asked me to come and speak about my techniques, about my writing, because um, I'm quite successful, you know. I, I'm a quite successful author. My first novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, came out just just last year, 1940. And it was, it really was quite successful. New York Times review of my book said, Carson McCullers is a full-fledged novelist. Whatever her age, she writes with a sweep and certainty that are overwhelming. Virginia Quarterly Review said it was a miracle of compassion, pity, and irony, you know? Oh, and my favorite review. The most impressive aspect of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is the astonishing humanity that enables a white writer for the first time in Southern fiction to handle Negro characters with as much ease and justice as those of her own race. Richard Wright, New Republic, August 1940. Take that, William Faulkner. So these are my tips for success. Just sit at your desk five hours a day. Go for a walk for an hour. Start with a sherry, end with a gin. A toddy for the body, for the hours within. My advice to all young writers is this. If you want to be a writer like me, First of all, you must be fated. Why don't you start with your pen and your heart and the need to know how they're related? You must begin with your story within. When you long to feel somehow connected, get into the flows of life as it goes, along on its path unexpected. My advice to all young writers is this. Writing is discipline. Writing is art. So even as you seclude, you have to write morning, noon, and night. You have to write even if you're not in the mood. My advice to all young writers is this. So many things you all these details tell and show The New York Times never shows the deal The daily news always makes it real My advice to all young writers is this Find the divine collusion Seek out God on your team Court the fantastic illusion Create the flowering dream My advice to all young writers is this You must begin with your story within And when you long to feel somehow connected Get into the flows of life as it goes Along on its path unexpected My advice to all young writers is this just write. That said, everybody hates my newest novel, Reflections in a Golden Eye. Not that I care one whit about reviews, but lately the critics say that I am a holy terror. 
that I am a destroyer, carnivorous, cannibalistic, that I am an emotional vampire, a viper, a lesbian, corrupting the morals of America's youth. You know, it's all, it's all true. I've had many, many, many affairs. I've had affairs with men and affairs with women and affairs with what's left. I had a passionate relationship with Greta Garbo and it lasted all the way through, well, lunchtime. Then we realized we had nothing to say to each other. And Catherine Ann Porter, it's quite a story there, and that lovely little ballerina. One time, I offered myself to Louis Untermeyer, famous poet, and he declined because he was rather tired, and I was rather tired too, but I thought it would be nice to ask. So I'm going to talk about my successful novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which is about five people who are fundamentally alone. And each one is connected by and to this one man who is a deaf, a deaf mute named John Singer. And, and as I said, it, it, it was tremendously successful from the moment it came out, which was only last year, 1940, which seems so long ago now. And I was 22 when the novel came out, and now I'm 23 and, and a half. But I was 19 when I began this novel, and that was the year I married Reeves, Reeves McCullers. So I am no longer Lula Carson Smith, as I was born. I am now Carson McCullers, famous author. Reeves comes from Alabama, but I, I come from Columbus, Georgia. The character in my work that is most like myself is Frankie Adams. My sister said that, and I suppose there's something to it, you know? The we of me. That is from the member of the wedding, where Frankie wants to join her brother and his bride in the wedding, and not just the wedding party, but in the marriage. That part does not quite work out. So I am like Frankie. But then again, I become all the characters I write about. I am so immersed in them that their motives are my own. When I write about a thief, I become one. When I write about Captain Pendleton, I become a homosexual man. When I write about a deaf mute, I am dumb for the time of the story. And I bless the Latin poet Terence, who said nothing human is alien to me. I think the characters that give you the most trouble are the ones you love the best. And I worked so hard on that novel, on the member of the wedding, five years on that novel, and I liked the language of that novel. And I wanted it to have the imagery and the cadence of poetry. I was glad when I made a play of it, because it was spoken then. And I, I liked the line. And the novel and the play were both very, very successful. And I, I wrote the play with Tennessee Williams. He invited me to spend the summer in Nantucket. He said he was very sick. He thought he might die. How could I refuse? That summer of 1946 was magnificent. And the house was a mess. As a storm had blown in and broken all the windows. A stray cat had just had kittens on my bed. And Ten was giving the kitty whiskey, see, to try and relieve the pains. And he said, now you need to make a play, a member of the wedding. And I said, I don't know anything about plays. Ten just smiled. So he worked at one part of the table, writing Summer and Smoke. And I wrote at the other part of the table, writing Member of the Wedding. We worked all day, we swam at four, and then I made my special dish, Spuds Carson. 
You take a potato and cook it. Then you pound it up. Throw in some onions and butter. Spuds, Carson. Open a can of pea soup. And then you put it in the pot. Enliven it with weenies. Soup, Carson. Do you know the writer, Henry Miller? He wrote me a note, a congratulatory note back in 1940. He referred to me back then as a prophetess. Yes, back then, because I foresaw that march in Washington, D.C., that civil rights march a couple years ago. It was all right there in my first book, way before she. You know, I try. I try to be generous. And there's some of these younger up-and-coming authors who recently have achieved great acclaim. And if you must know, I am particularly thinking of Harper Lee, who wrote a novel. There's nothing wrong with a novel. It's a good novel. Perfectly fine novel. Not a particularly profound or groundbreaking novel, mind you. Not like My Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And of course, I am speaking of to kill a mockingbird, which has won all kinds of, it's won all kinds of, she won all kinds of things. But I must tell you that she was well-schooled, well-schooled. She knows from whence she came. Oh, writers. Virginia, please me cold. I recognize the genius, but I'm twice as bold. I have more to say than Hemingway. Lord knows, compared to Faulkner, I say it in a better way. Graham Greene, he loves me. He loves my poetic sensibility. Catherine Ann Porter might be the best one now. But in about a year, I'm going to show her how. Yes, I will. Said to Reeves the other day, Proust really is the man who comforts me in a way no other writer can. The timeless quality of the work. The length is very long. Believe me, Marcel Proust goes on and on and on and on for seven volumes. Now, Harper, Harper, Lee, 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 she only wrote the one book. I've written more than three. Darling, Tennessee Williams, it's anybody's guess why a streetcar made millions and wedding so much less. I will forever be pondering that one. My sad cafe is greater than his Gatsby. I'm just telling you what someone told me they read. Cause I never look at my reviews. They might give me the big head. Now Truman Capote was hypnotized, mesmerized, cause he realized that I knew that he knew that he had plagiarized my cadence. Imagine his surprise. You'll see it in his eyes when I win that Nobel Thank you so very much. I shall be humble but gracious. Harper, Harper, Harper. Lee, Lee, Lee. Why do they always compare her to me? To me. seems to be receiving more than she deserves. Honey, she's poaching on my literary preserves. From Harper Lee, we have seen and we've heard. 
And I'd like to kill more than just that mockingbird Well, you know, sometimes I really would So you just wait until next year I was writing about this social situation 20 years before her, but that is not. That is, I am quite generous in my appraisals. And I have my 25 years of writing to look back on. Oh, yes. This event is called Carson McCullough's Celebrates 25 Years of Writing, and that is what I'm going to do. Or is it 30? Which I have behind me. Now, they said, can you come back to the 92nd Street Y and talk about love, Mrs. McCullough? And I said, no. I said, darling, what on earth am I going to say for posterity? I don't have any more of it left. Everyone I've loved is gone. And Lover Beloved will be in release later on, following its premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival. And coming up next on Arts Express... I didn't volunteer to work here. I'm forced by gunpoint. I'm forced by laws. There's no way out for me. I was helped enslaved in Pike County, Mississippi. From Pike County, Mississippi to parts of Louisiana. Maywall and her family escaped from slavery in 1963. 1963. At the time, they were unaware that slavery had ended. And that terrifying reality is that in rural parts of the Deep South, African Americans remained enslaved well into the 1960s, when slavery had in fact ended a century ago and they had no idea that they were free. One such tragedy was that of May Louise Walls Miller, who passed away in 2014, and her life and difficult escape to freedom into the civil rights uprising of the 1960s is now a feature film loosely based on her life. Alice, starring Kiki Palmer, Common, and Alicia Witt, Alice is written and directed with a striking blend of history and fantasy by young African-American Kristen Verlinden. While Alicia Witt says about her portrayal in the film, I think the movie is going to blow people's minds. We're obviously aghast at what we're watching, and even more disturbing and important is that it's actually based on a true story. And my hope is that it can help to illuminate the fact that it breaks my heart that there are still people who are out there still flying Confederate flags and not getting it. The depths of the evil of it. First some scenes from Alice, and then part of a larger conversation with actress Alicia Witt about her film career also counting Orange is the New Black, I Care About You, and As a Child in David Lynch's Dune, and then Alicia Witt whose small but disturbing role in the film as the plantation owner's white wife, who herself flees into the present and the real world, personifies those who stand by as evil is perpetrated and do nothing. In our gracious state of Georgia, our God-given land, the Lord has offered us domestic livestock. We have to go. You must hit your head real hard. Do you know you're in Georgia? Do you know it's 1973? Well, I'm gonna need you to fill this out for me. I don't ride. I can help you. This is knowledge. 
We spent decades trying to make a change for the people. I know exactly who I am and where I came from. Who are you then? I'm free. How do I look? Like you. It's the woman you used to own. Alice? You watched us get tormented. It's my turn now. I'm going back. I'm not scared, and that should scare you. I am freedom. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I <laughs> nice to talk to you. Now, about your portrayal in Alice, which looks into slavery in the plantation south, what can you say about being drawn into being part of that film? I think that movie is going to blow people's minds. And I'm so proud to be a very small, but I think important part of it. I think Kiki Palmer is just, wow. It is an extraordinary movie. It's just called Alice. It's, it's, you watch the first part of it, and, and this isn't a spoiler because this was in the official description that went out when they first announced that Kiki was starring in it. But you watch the first like quarter of the movie, and you believe you're watching a movie that's taking place in the 1800s on a plantation in the South with, with these servants who are, who are slaves and they're, um, they're being terribly treated and it's, it's horrible. And we're obviously aghast at what we're watching. And then we discover that it's 1973 and even more disturbing and important about this is that it is actually based on a true story um true story and Kristen she she changed the story a little bit but the basic truth that this horrible monster was keeping people as slaves um and these they they were none the wiser that slavery had ended they, they were kept in this plantation in the middle of nowhere, and they believed that it was still the law of the land. Mm. So they had no idea what year it was. They had no idea that, um, that life had progressed. And, the, I mean, it was just, um, yeah, it's really, it's really quite a huge movie. And yeah. I'm so honored to have a really small part in it. I play Rachel, who is Alice's former, quote-unquote, owner. And she saw nothing wrong with the way things used to be. Mm. It's a very dark role. And I, my hope is that through this role, perhaps I can help to, to illuminate um, the fact that there are, there are people who still kind of believe that there was nothing wrong with that. And I know the story takes place in 1973, but um, there's it's very difficult to erase the scars of something as vile and pervasive as slavery. And it really wasn't that long ago. Our country is still so young. And I... I it breaks my heart to know that there are still people that in their heart of hearts, you know, they're, they're still out there flying Confederate flags and not, not getting it, not understanding the depth of the, um, the evil of it. So I, I was thrilled to be offered this role because I, I had to fully dive into this character that, to her marrow, believes that the way things used to be was the way things still should be. And that doesn't only apply to people of color, but it also applies to women. Mm. 
uh, she believes the man is the head of the household and um, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a lot. I'm really grateful I got to, got to play that part and to work with Kiki and with Common. (laughs) They're both incredible. I, I think I, I was afraid I was going to just start stammering around Common because I've been a fan of his for so long. Not only his music, which is legendary. I mean, he's one of the classic all-time hip-hop artists. Uh, so profound, so so kind, and so all-encompassing. And and then to see the work that he's been doing recently and the videos he's been posting on his Instagram where he's going into inner-city neighborhoods and talking one-on-one to young people who don't think life is ever going to change. And he's just talking to them human to human to explain that their voice does matter. So I just think Kiki's a powerhouse. She's extraordinary. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Alicia Witt, for calling in. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye. And Alice is out now in release. Express. I'm on my way to meet someone I think of as a friend, but in reality, we've never even met. My name is Mohammed Al-Salahi. I'm from Mauritania. I was detained in Guantanamo Bay, kidnapped from my country and detained. I was subjected to torture. I soon found out that Mohamedou had a reason he wanted to see me. He's not finished with what happened to him at Guantanamo. He has a plan. And I suddenly realize he thinks that I, as an American journalist, can actually help him. His plan is that I should go out and find them for him. He broke my ribs, rib cases. He broke your ribs? Yeah. He almost killed me twice. Yes. Yeah, he, he hurt me a lot. Do I want to kill him? Do I want to apply the same pain on him? I don't want to sleep. Because when I sleep, I get right away nightmares. I imagine the next interrogation, what it's look like. Who is going to interrogate? How is he going to torture me? Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 2002, a Mauritanian engineer named Mohamedou Slahi was bundled onto a military transport plane and imprisoned by the U.S. at Guantanamo for 14 years, enduring years of physical and psychological torture. He wrote a book about it while he was in there that eventually got made into a film called The Mauritanian. But after the film's release, journalist John Getz found himself enlisted by Slahi on an obsessive mission that Getz could never have predicted. Getz documents his journey with Slahi in a new film called Guantanamo Diary Revisited, and I'm very happy to be speaking with John Getz. 
Hi, John. Hi. John, where are you calling in from exactly? I'm calling in from Berlin, Germany. Ah, and and how are people taking the war there? Well, there's been, um, you know, I was just on the train to uh, Hamburg a couple days ago, and the train was filled with refugees. The train station, oh, the main gosh. central station, uh, is kind of the refugee uh, arrival point. Um, you also see kind of refugees in the city kind of walking around. Um, there have been lots of demonstrations uh, of various different kinds, um, of course, critical of the invasion, but also critical of NATO and, and many others I haven't really caught up on. But yeah, it's, it, there's been a lot of uh, activity around the war here. Hmm. Well, John, to the movie, how did you first become aware of Mohamedou Slahi and what made you want to make contact with him? Well, we were kind of in contact with each other indirectly, even while he was at Guantanamo, because I used to work at, at the German magazine Der Spiegel, and I had done a big story about him, and I was kind of the first person to do a story that basically questioned the narrative about him that the U.S. government had been putting out, that he was basically one of the major terrorists of Al-Qaeda, and that he was you know, kind of one of the plotters of 9-11. Um, and we kind of looked at the evidence and, and you know, I think it was, it was a several page story, you know, argued, sure, it could be true, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons to think it may not be true. Um, and so, and apparently Mohamedou, who, I mean, I know this from his attorney, when he read it at one of those skiff rooms in, in Guantanamo while sitting next to his attorney kind of read it. And it was the first time he had read something that didn't assume that he was guilty. And he just kind of broke down and cried. And he kind of has always told me that he felt that that really was the turning point for him. It was the first time someone had taken his side. Then he realized he could eventually get out. And then when he got out, he um, sent me a WhatsApp message and said, uh, hey, want to come and visit me? Not too much long later, I was in Mauritania and met him. What exactly were the charges against Slahi? He was never charged. Um the U.S. government had a lot of time to come up with charges, you know, to come up with an indictment of some kind. And there were never any charges. When Mohamedou reached out to you, he enlisted you on a very unusual mission. So tell us about what he <laughs> wanted you to do. He had seen previous work that I had done where I had found U.S. government people and in one case, even CIA kidnappers. And he was like, uh-huh. And, and he had this plan. And the plan was, is that I would go and find the people who had tortured him in Guantanamo and that he was very interested in talking to them. But when we eventually found them, it was really surprising to see how much the weeks and months in 2003, when they were involved in the torture of Mohamed Islahi, how important that was in their lives and in their biographies and how, how much it made them who they were. And I was surprised to see that actually a number of them wanted to talk to Mohamedou. What exactly was Mohamedou's plan once he was to find them? Did he have a plan in advance or did he think, well, I'll figure that out when we get to it? Well, I didn't really realize it at the time, like really what his plan was. And actually, even now, I'm like beginning to really understand it. I remember once after he spoke to one of the torturers, I was worried about like, you know, like, you know, what am I doing here? What am I like putting him in a really horrible situation where he's going to get, I don't know, reminded of what happened to him and re-traumatized. And anyway, I called him up the next day. It's it's not in the film, but it was actually a really interesting moment. And I'm like, you know, <clears throat> Muhammad, God, I feel really horrible. You know what, you know what, you know, what are we doing here? Does this like, and he's like, John, I'm not a child. I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, you don't need to worry <laughs> that about it. sounds just me. like him in the film, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think what was really important for him to meet these people, a free man and you know, out of prison and doing well and to show that they didn't defeat him, right? Like it was like it was like it was very important for him to kind of get that satisfaction and that kind of balance back in his life. These were people that had seen him in these kind of like horribly intimate 
moments, right? Like the, yeah. you know, the worst moments mm-hmm. of his life and, mm-hmm. and in many ways of their lives as well. And he wanted to see them on different terms. What, would you say Mohamedou was a religious man? Yeah, he's he's uh, he says he is. I've seen him pray a lot, and I know he uh, is one of the you know he has the Quran memorized and, and other oh, wow. other religious texts. Yeah, he's certainly very religious. Let's go back a little bit to the meeting with the various torturers. They each had a different assignment in some sense. They call themselves part of a special projects team. I guess that's the 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 kind of uh, you know benevolent title they gave themselves. So what exactly was their mission with regard to Mohamedou? Well, they say it explicitly. I mean, their their project was to break him, right? It's very interesting that they were all about breaking him. I mean, they even used those terms when this was at the time when Rumsfeld, who was uh, Secretary of Defense, lived on the weekends in a place in Maryland that was called Misery Mansion. And Misery Mansion is described by Frederick Douglass in his autobiography as a place that the, that slaves were brought to be broken. Oh my he, just, God. he lived in that home during the time while he was Secretary of Defense. Um, well, the three people on the Special Projects torture team each had different jobs. Could, could you give us a little sketch of the three you call Master Jetty, Mr. X, and Sydney? Right. So there were guards, there's interrogators, and there are analysts, right? The guards gave themselves Star Wars names, and there was Master Luke, Master Jedi, and I can't, you know, they're, they're, you know, they all had different Star Wars names. And it's really very interesting. The, the one guard, Master Jedi, of all the people who inflicted harm on Mohamedou, the only person to apologize to Mohamedou, to reach out on his own right, was the lowest person in the entire hierarchy. And that was a very poor working class guy from Kentucky who really felt horrible about what he did and on his own reached out to Mohamedou and apologized for what he had done and uh, talked about how it had, it had been bothering him. And then there were their interrogators. There were kind of three interrogators that went in, you know, three eight-hour shifts because he was at that point not allowed to sleep. And the person who had kind of, like, who was considered the real, to, to scare him was called Mr. X, and he had the night shift. Uh, and then, of course, we also interviewed Sydney, who was an analyst who was involved in some interrogation or some questioning, I think as she would say it, of uh, Mohamedou, but she was not, um, and she was involved in the interrogation plan, the plan that that designed the torture of Mohamedou, but she uh, was not, uh, you know, in the in the cell very often. I mean, and it was it was quite brutal at some points. He was stripped naked at times, deprived of food, shackled. Um, the, Mohamedou says he broke his rib cage, and. And Sydney, the analyst, it was kind of diabolical what she said and could say it so calmly, which is she knew that he was a very social person. And she yeah. said, I, I yeah. told people you have to isolate him, take away his passion to talk to people, to communicate. That was yeah. my idea. And she's very proud of that. Yes, yes. And putting him in, in solitary was not just to protect others or to protect him from himself or what other usual uh, excuses there are for solitary confinement, but solely to torture him, solely to break him as a human being. It was, it was very specifically to break him. Um, they say that. I mean, they, yeah. you know, that was clearly the design. The other thing that they did, which was particularly horrible, Mohamedou, they, they did research about Mohamedou's life and actually, Sydney was in Mauritania and, and spoke to his family. And, um, oh and it was well known that he was very, very close to his mother. So they decided to focus on his mother. And they did kind of a, um, a trick. And you have to remember, this is kind of after six weeks of 
you know, very little nutrition or, you know, not enough nutrition, very little sleep, you know, being beaten and, and, you know, and tortured in a variety of ways. Um, they did this kind of ruse where this Air Force captain kind of comes into the room, a person dressed as an Air Force captain and says, I'm here from the White House. I need to show you this letter. Um, and in the letter, it, it's basically phrased in a way for him to understand that his mother was to be captured and put into a prison uh, with no protection from the male prisoners. Um, so what they were doing yeah. was yeah. was to suggest to him that his mother would be raped. Yeah, yeah. I think what you really captured well in the film is that these three people, these three torturers, they're in their own way, they're so ordinary. The guard is says, well, you know, it was kind of nice to join the army. I knew I was going to get food. I didn't have to go hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and Sydney, the analyst, she says, yeah, you know, I. I was using my intelligence, my smarts. People even resented me that I was so smart, you know? Yeah. Um, and then even Mr. X, the most brutal of them, you know, he kind of felt like, well, you know, I'm 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 putting my uh, aggressive instincts in the service of something larger for my country, you know, and uh, so right. it's probably a good thing. They seem to be kind of the uh, embodiment of Hannah Arendt's uh, banality of evil, uh, just sort of ordinary people who didn't think very deeply about the moral consequences of what they were doing. I would disagree about one thing, that Mr. X has spent the last 15 to 20 years thinking a lot about what he did. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he has had to deal with urges of self-mutilation, of suicide, he then spent many years within the U.S. military system continuing to do interrogations, but then also teaching young interrogators, if you torture somebody, it's going to make you into me, and you don't want to be me. Oh, um, well, that's interesting. And each right. one of them had a sort of different way of coping. Yeah. I mean, the, the guard is, is, is very involved in his church and... Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a church thing where his pastor had said to him, you know, is there anyone you've harmed in your life? You should, you know, uh, go and seek forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of, you know, so that was a powerful thing for him. Um, Mr. X has, has spent his life trying to understand what he did. He, he wrote his kind of master's, th master's thesis about this. He does oh. paintings about what he did. and Yeah. And then, of course, there's, the analyst who has no 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 regrets. She she feels I, I did it right, and and the fact that Mohamedou was released was a mistake by the intelligence services. Yeah, I mean, she alone, unlike these like you know fourteen intelligence services or whatever that signed off on his release, she alone knows the truth. One of the more senior people in the special projects team that you interviewed was. Richard Zuli, head of the Special Projects Unit. His career started out with getting false confessions out of prisoners in Chicago. Was, was that with the police department? He was in the Chicago Police Department, and there are many allegations of him getting false uh, confessions. There's one case where the governor of Illinois even pardoned the person where he got the, where he got the, the, the false confession. Well, he... He he reached out to you, but he didn't uh, like you challenging him, did he? No, he actually in the film kind of hits the camera and and you know kind of orders us to to you know to, you know turn off the camera. And... He looks remarkably like Dick Cheney. I mean, they could have been <laughs> brothers or twins separated <laughs> yes. at birth, but <laughs> when you challenge him eventually. His calm demeanor breaks, and uh, as you say, the he he starts hitting the camera. Um, we couldn't have done better. I mean, it was kind of he gave us what we needed in that moment. Yeah. So how how did Mohamedou eventually get out of Gitmo? Well, he has uh, 
uh, he, he has one of the great defense attorneys of the United States, Nancy Hollander. She managed to basically get the book, uh, you know, his diaries came to her in the form of letters. She managed to get it declassified and and published. And I think that was very important for his case. The book became, an, you know, an international bestseller. He was there was an order for his release, and he had to, he had to wait another seven years. Um, oh but um, eventually, he was released in uh, 2016, just before, shortly before Trump became president. Well, so what is Slahi's uh, status now? Well, he had spent a long time trying to get into Germany and did not get into Germany. Then the Netherlands, you know, a few months ago, let him in. He's now in the UK, kind of, I think, doing kind of on a speaking tour. Yeah, he's out of Mauritania. And and for the almost the entire time that I've known him, you know, or when I was visiting him in Mauritania, he wasn't allowed to leave Mauritania. He was stuck there. Uh, and it took a long time for him to get a passport. And then again, the U.S. government put pressure on the German government not to uh, let him come into Germany. Uh, Anything else you want to add, John, before we wrap up? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just so happy that you saw it. And we um, put so much work and, and so many years into it. It was just so fantastic to hear someone to have seen it in, in, the, in North America. Well, well, thank you, John. And thank you. Thank you for the film. I've been speaking with John Getz, the director of the documentary Guantanamo Diary Revisited, coming to DVD and video on demand on March 29th, 2022. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.